The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Bill on your show. Well, oh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky team. <laughs> Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to The Tom Sumner Show. I have to lay low for a while So I'll be staying here inside It's too dangerous out in the world I'll see you on the other side When I'm in my quarantine my little place too high My heart is aching and I'm missing you I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side We're all in for a bumpy ride Without you here I hold on to this phone so tight And I'll whisper you a goodnight kiss I'll see you on the other side When I crawl out of my cage When the world is purified I will find you and I promise this I'll see you on the other side On the other side And I'll meet you with arms open wide I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side And I'll meet you with arms open wide I'll see you on the other side Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. I guess this hour uh, spent... Um, 
40 years as a uh, Presbyterian pastor, and he's written a book about his uh, <coughs> experiences and his reflections uh, it called Chase, uh, Chasing After Wind, A Pastor's Life. Um, his name is uh, Douglas uh, Brower, and he joins me by phone. Good morning, Doug. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Tom. It's good to be with you. You know, you know. There's that great song in uh, in the movie White Christmas. Uh, what do you do with a general when they stop being a general? What do you do with a pastor <laughs> when they stop being a pastor? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's dangerous to have too much time uh, on one's hands. I uh, I haven't left it behind entirely. I I did it. A short interim stretch, and I'm about ready to do another one. So, no, pastors don't stop being pastors. You know, it's interesting. You you talk about your experiences um, as you look back on it. You seem a little frustrated about the administration part of it, the the day to day operational management of a church as opposed to really doing the kind of ministering you felt called to do. Um, why, why choose something as, as traditional as, for example, where I went to church when I was a little boy, the Presbyterian church, um, as, as opposed to, I, I don't know, Doug, missionary work? You know, there, there were certainly lots of choices you could have made. Yeah, that's a good question. I think the the attraction uh, to a larger church, which is uh, more complicated and and demands more administrative oversight, the attraction is that, that that's a stable way of life, and the pay tends to be better, and uh, you know there's more security that way. Uh, well, and to, people don't think of pastors yeah. as really you know making a lot of money unless you know unless they've got a really good TV deal, but. Um, <laughs> But but in reality, some of the bigger, more stable churches, probably it's more possible to make a decent living. Well, if nothing else, I hope that readers get that uh, from the book, that pastors do pay attention to their financial security. They, they live uh, precariously. So, yes, I think uh, people need to understand that pastors do think about that. You know, it's it, one of the things that, that people looking in on the clergy from outside, are, are they often uh, ranking everything according to the rules priests follow? Uh, I'm not exactly sure uh, what you mean by that. Well, I'm just um, saying we have this impression about... Priests being married to the church and being celibate, uh, and you know having these these standards that they that they live by, and and I just wonder if pastors don't find people on the outside looking in, comparing them to priests. Well, let me try to answer it this way. Uh, one of my the first reviewers of the book uh, remarked that reading the book is like encountering your 
elementary school teacher at the grocery store. You just don't imagine that this person has a life outside the school, just as you don't imagine that a, a pastor has a life outside the church. But what the, the book tries to do is to demonstrate that a pastor's life is full with uh, family and um, <laughs> other obligations. And if, so, I, I mean, my hope is that church members will begin to see their pastors as, as human beings, you know, with a full range of, of needs and expectations. Is it a calling or a pursuit? Yeah, I wrestle uh, with that question quite a bit. When I started out in ministry, I clearly thought of it as vocation, something I was called to do. I had a what I would describe as a life-changing experience that uh, you know, compelled me to choose that as a way of life. And then uh, over the years, you, you, you don't totally lose sight of that, but you get caught up in uh, trying to be the best you can be and better than your <laughs> seminary classmates. And it, it, you, you tend to treat what you do as a career more than a calling. And, and what I tried to argue is that the, I, and I hope other pastors never forget why they responded to the call in the first place. It is a wonderful vocation. It's, um, I mean, I, I, I can weep over what I was allowed to do with my life. Doug, a lot of people have been talking about um, the impact of COVID-19 this last couple of years. Um, on businesses, on institutions, churches, uh, all kinds of things, and talking about a great resignation. Um, yeah. A lot of people are rethinking what they want to do for a living, and, um, you know, people stopped going to church, the ones that were going to church. But I want to talk about that great resignation for a minute, because... Um, Church attendance and church membership has been in decline for decades in the U.S., you know, long before the pandemic came along. Um, did you feel like you were, and, and I, this is going to sound a little facetious because that's kind of how I am, um, did you feel like you were rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic? Not the image I would have used, but yes, I get what you're <laughs> you're aiming at. Uh, but do you know when what I was I mean? ordained way back in in 1980? It was clear already then that at least the mainline church uh, was beginning to decline. It, soon thereafter, the the evangelical churches would experience their own decline. But so already in the 80s, it was clear that uh, the, the mainline church was losing some cultural influence. And instead of looking forward, instead of uh, preparing ourselves for a different kind of future, the the response of the mainline churches, especially the Presbyterian church, was to fight back. And we fought back with, uh, <laughs> if you can believe this, with evangelism. We started to uh, train our people uh, in sharing their faith, and the idea was not that, uh, you know, we were going to uh, win more souls for Christ. The idea was that we were going to fill those pews again and get back on top, which is what we knew and what we, where we thought we belonged. So, yes, the, the, this idea of decline has been with me throughout 
uh, my ministry. Now, I did serve uh, one church, the longest stretch of all, where we experienced tremendous growth. And what I remember thinking back then was, you know, I mean, not only was I pleased about it, but I remember thinking, well, this is the way things are supposed to be. This is the way it was in my childhood, where the church was full every Sunday. And so instead of feeling <laughs> gratitude for it or amazement, what I thought was, yeah, okay, now we're we're doing it the way we're supposed to be doing it. You know, it's interesting when you talk to people about religion and faith, um, very often you get this feedback from people, well, I don't belong to any church, and I don't attend church, but I'm very spiritual. And I want to explore that a little bit with you, Doug. Um, And I'm sure you've run into that as well. Is it possible for people and I know a lot of people would answer this yes, but is it possible for people to have a relationship with God and and to practice their faith without belonging to a church? Or um, do you think that that the shepherding that that pastors and ministers and priests do is important to help people know how to practice their faith? Well, it's not an either-or. I think uh, I think the answer to both of those questions is actually yes. I, I'm we're well aware. You are well aware. I am uh, aware that uh, not only is church attendance has declined, but people are not thinking in terms of church relationships anymore. Uh, and yet, if you listen to them, they still ask deeply spiritual questions. Our our spiritual nature has not gone away. So, so the second part of your your question is is that formed in a community of faith? And I would say yes. I mean, one of the best ways to grow in in one's spiritual life, and a, a, one of the best ways to find answers to spiritual questions, is in a spiritual context in a community of faith. But uh, for lots of reasons, cultural reasons, <laughs> there's a lot of skepticism these days about those communities of faith well there's a a lack of trust in any form of officiating whether it's elected officials or leaders from the scientific community there's there's just this this complete and total lack of trust in any sort of authority and i don't know how we get that back Pardon me. And I don't know how we get that back. Right. I'm. I'm certainly. I certainly have no ideas about how the culture itself recovers trust and in institutions. But yes, the the church has just been one more institution that's found itself uh, without the trust of of the the rest of the culture. Yeah, I'm well aware of that. I I think what the church needs to do this is my own preliminary thinking on the subject is that the church needs to regroup and think deeply about what it what it should be what it ought to be and i think some of the answers will emerge when if if the church can let go of what it used to be and uh, look to embrace some kind of new identity more with pastor turned author douglas brewer straight ahead Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Hornets. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You are, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to Tom Sumner Program. More with pastor-turned-author Douglas Brewer, straight ahead. Hey, Doug, you studied philosophy. Is there a significant difference between philosophy and theology? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I was a philosophy major in college, it's true, and I did that not because I thought it would... Uh, <laughs> Help me in the business world uh, one day, but we had some amazing teachers in the philosophy department. So what what I learned, looking back, what I learned in college was how to think. Uh, what developed were my critical thinking skills, and I think that's applicable to any area of life, including theology. I think there was a time historically, I'm not an expert in in this, but I think there was a time when theology was regarded as the queen of sciences. So at the time, I guess theology would have informed every area of life. But for me, philosophy was a way to start thinking, knowing how to ask questions, how to find answers, that sort of thing. You know, a couple of minutes ago, um, Doug, you mentioned that, that you think the, that the church as an institution and the various... Uh, uh, components within it, um, various uh, disciplines and, and so on, need to rethink themselves. And that raises um, a, a question for me. I've, I've often said on my show that I think the two documents in human history that have been the most uh, abused and misquoted and, and uh, misused were uh, the U.S. Constitution and the Holy Bible. Um, <laughs> and I guess my point is, you know, a lot of people look at the Constitution and say, you know, there are, are people who believe that the Constitution is a very literal document. There are some that believe it's a living document and subject to a certain amount of interpretation and change. And and what about the Bible? There are so many things from the Bible that are used to justify bad behavior. Um, and, and a lot of um, writing about faith and, and Christianity in particular um, all have their roots in this one book. Is it a living document? Are there things that are not to be taken literally and some things that can be extrapolated from from parables and other things that, that have much bigger meaning than they're often given? Yeah, I think you are already anticipating the answer here. The The Bible is a marvelous book, but it's it's by no means homogeneous. In other words, the, the Bible has uh, history, and it has poetry, and it has, uh, as you say, story. Uh, Jesus was a, a marvelous storyteller. Yeah, yeah the, the Bible is a collection of uh, uh, literary genres, and to approach each book or each chapter of the Bible in the same way, to ask the same questions of each, uh, it's just to invite a misunderstanding. So uh, the Bible, like most kinds of literature, requires some knowledge and background and study. And, you know, for some of us, <laughs> that's an exciting endeavor. We, uh, I, I loved uh, 
uh, I love my uh, Old Testament and New Testament classes. Uh, I wish I had a dollar uh, for every time a church member said to me, uh, Scripture is clear, <laughs> because I wanted to say, uh, you know, centuries of debate have gone on over whatever subject you just raised. And scripture is not quite, is often uh, not quite as clear as you think. Well, I wonder about that because I, I, depending on on who I talk to and and how they describe their particular practice of faith, um, I'm I'm always kind of curious to to draw a distinction between whether it's a discipline. Or an exploration. In in terms of the Bible, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, can it be both? I mean, the Bible can be read in a more academic way, which is how I was trained during seminary days, anyway, to read it. So uh, it's not happening much anymore. But I was introduced to the original languages, Greek and Hebrew. And I read scholarly accounts of the Bible. So that's one way to, to read the Bible. But the Bible can also be read uh, devotionally with rich meaning. I mean, you know, there are, there are people who read the Bible and then have long periods of silence in between. So, I mean, the Bible is one of these marvelous uh, books that can be used in any number of ways. So it doesn't come down to a simple uh, either-or. What what made you want to share your your um, your thoughts and 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 your memories of of your career as a pastor? Was it running into your third grade teacher at the grocery store? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, well, I'll say a couple of things in response to this. One is that there has been a series of novels. Uh, written by uh, Jan Karen. Uh, I think she's written 13 in all, some of which have made the New York Times bestseller list. And, and the series of novels is based on a fictional father, Tim. And at least some of the time, he's a priest in uh, a fictional town known as Mitford. A- anyway, she's a terrific writer, and these stories are wonderful. And the truth of the matter is, I never identified once with Father Tim's life as a, a priest. So, so this goes back years now. I, I thought we need a realistic portrayal of what it means to be a pastor. And Father, there may be some Father Tims out there. God bless them, <laughs> but that's not uh, an accurate description of all of us. So, okay. The second part of uh, second part of what I'd say to you is, uh, as soon as I retired, I found myself plunged into a life review. I, I suddenly had all this time on my hands. At least. It felt like a lot of time, and I didn't look for this. I didn't expect it, didn't want it, and uh, and yet I could not avoid it. So I started rethinking my entire 40-year ministry. I wondered what was good about it, what I wish I hadn't spent so much time on. And so that's what the book comes from, this uh, desire to give an accurate picture at least from my point of view, an accurate picture of what it looks like to be a, a Christian pastor. You know, I'm I'm a fan of um, mystery and and um, 
that particular genre of writing and so i've you know i'm i'm a fan of stories like the rosary murders and all that and and i have to admit to a, just a little tiny bit of a letdown doug when i uh discovered chasing <laughs> after wind wasn't uh, <laughs> wasn't a faith-based murder mystery <laughs> no it- so you it's didn't not, solve I, I, crimes while you were being a pastor, <laughs> is, is what I'm getting at, Doug. No, part of me wishes I was a vicar in an you know an English in the English countryside, <laughs> uh, having lots of time to solve mysteries. <laughs> that would be a wonderful way of life, too. Um, no, it, but it, it, let me say this: even though there's yeah. no uh, mystery that's solved, I hope there's a narrative arc where. You know, this bright-eyed pastor starts out full of idealism and enthusiasm and then encounters disillusionment along the way and thinking, what am I doing? I'm spending so much time on pointless matters. But the the arc continues until the end when I think there's a, you know, from a literary point of view, I hope there's a resolution at the end where I, I, I come to the realization that I was allowed to do something amazing with my life. And so at the end, there's this overwhelming feeling of, of gratitude for the life I have been given. So I, yes, disillusionment, uh, frustrations, all of that. But, you know, thank goodness there is a mystery solved uh, at the end of my story. Well, Doug, that's one of the things that, that I, I drew from reading about your book is that you, while you acknowledge the everyday work a day make a living <laughs> of a pastor's life, you also are able to isolate and identify some of the opportunities you were given and the role that you were able to play in people's lives that was in fact rewarding. Can you share a couple of examples without spoiler alerts or using names? Yeah, I, I th- I'll give an example that may come as a surprise to most people. You know, I, th- I think most people would assume that uh, officiating at a funeral, for example, is a terrible deal. That you know, in fact, uh, I remember a specific incident where where there was a big funeral service for a young person often the younger you are the more people would attend your funeral so we're on our way into the the church auditorium or sanctuary and one of the ushers holding the door said to me you know i don't envy you having to do this like he was (laughs) and there wasn't time to have a conversation at that moment but i and i know he was trying to express his concern for me and it did seem like a daunting task but here's the thing, and I think most pastors will recognize the truth in this. What a privilege to be invited by a family into their grief, uh, to, to be able to sit with them, to be able to find the words on that occasion that they are unable to speak on their own, is, as I describe in the, in the book, is a holy moment. I, I've never felt so privileged as I did in those moments to work with uh, grieving families. And I'll, I'll take this one step further. And again, this might be surprising to uh, your listeners. I'm guessing that the overwhelming majority of pastors would prefer to officiate at a funeral 
uh, over a, a wedding. And the, and and the reason for that is is pretty simple. It's surprising, isn't it? Well, no. I was actually going to ask Doug if, when you're officiating over weddings with the uh, with the divorce rate we have in this country, oh. if you're not whispering <laughs> off to the side, I give it eighteen months. <laughs> yeah, I tried not to think about that. <laughs> No, but the, it, 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 I think I've, I can put this pretty simply too. In a in a wedding situation, the yeah, if there's a religious uh, dimension to it or spiritual dimension, fine. Uh, but let's get to the reception where we can have fun. But uh, in a funeral, I think people are actually asking serious questions, and you know, not that all questions can be answered at that moment, but there's a spiritual searching and questioning that goes on at that time. And I think that's what pastors respond to. And that's where they feel needed. And, um, you know, that, that, that's where they think their training becomes important. It almost feels, um, you know, when you're officiating over a wedding, I would imagine that there are all kinds of opportunities ahead of the joining couple to make corrections to you know do things with their lives whereas at a funeral there's there's a certain air about it that almost seems like the last chance to ask (laughs) well don't get me wrong i loved probably every wedding or just about every wedding i was asked to officiate at so Yes, developing a relationship with a couple, spending time with them uh, ahead of the ceremony. That I loved all of that, so I don't want to diminish how important that was. But uh, at a at a funeral service or in the the it maybe even more so the the planning that goes into uh, getting ready for a service. I mean that I think that requires some pastoral skill and. Insight, you know, you have, have to figure out what's going on with this family and what are they th- thinking? What do they most need to hear? What what is it that they want to express? So yes, I <laughs> I, I think that in a a, a funeral uh, there is a f- you have to demonstrate. Have a pastor has to be able to demonstrate some very good skill, knowledge, whatever you want to call it. Well, Doug, I, um, I, you know, I, w- I was going to joke, you sound like a regular guy, but I've had so many wonderful conversations with uh, pastors and priests over the year that, or over the years, that I, uh, you know, I, I, I really sort of knew what to expect a little bit from the tone of your book. Hmm. Good. And, um... And of course, I always give. Um, I'm always curious about what's next. Um, you mentioned you might be looking to pastor again. Is there more writing in your future? Well, I hope there is. The next project hasn't come to mind, but um, as you know from uh, reading the book, I spent the last uh, five years or so. Uh, of my career pastoring a church in Europe. And uh, uh, I, have, I haven't signed the contract yet, but it, it looks like I'm going to be going back uh, 
this time uh, not to Switzerland but to the Netherlands, and I'm going to be pastoring one of these international uh, churches again uh, while they search for a permanent pastor. So I'll be there, I don't know, up, up to nine months, let's say. And uh, so, yes, <laughs> I'm guessing that uh, a story or a book may emerge from that experience as well. Well, I, I hope so. And I always give guests an opportunity uh, to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your book and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? Yes, um, I used to have a website. Now I have a Substack account, and it functions as a newsletter. Anybody who goes to Doug's blog at uh, Substack uh, can find my regular writing. Well, Doug, thank you so much for uh, sharing your time and some of your memories and observations with me and the listeners this morning and in your book. And uh, keep up the good work. Tom, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for having me on. All right. Take care. That was uh, Douglas Brower. He is the author of uh, a book, um, somewhat of a memoir, called Chasing After Wind, A Pastor's Life. And we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. What about seeing my minister yesterday? You know what my minister told me? He was saying how much pressure women are under from the devil and how the devil just hounds women. You know, that's rough too, being a minister. I mean, he told me, he said, you're coming in here complaining about your problems, and I got to wage this constant battle against the devil. I said, yeah, Rev. <laughs> he told me his wife came in the house a few days before, and she had this box. And on the side of this box was written the name of a very exclusive dress shop. The lowest dress was $85. That was on sale. <laughs> so she walks in the house, and Rev says, another dress? You bought another dress? This is ridiculous. That's the third dress this week. And his wife tells him, The devil made me buy this dress. <laughs> Said, I didn't want to buy no dress. The devil kept following me. I was going down the street going, mm-hmm. <laughs> And the devil kept following me, and he kept telling me how good I look. <laughs> Rev said, I'm not going for that. Said, every time you do something wrong, you blame it on the devil. You blamed it on the devil when you ran the car to the side of the church. <laughs> it was the devil. You wasn't there. How do you know? You grabbed the steering wheel out of my hand. Rick said, well, why didn't you step on the brake? Said, because when he grabbed the steering wheel, I tried to kick him. You <laughs> can't kick him and step on the brake at the same time. Said, and we had a big fight. And that's why I was in the back seat when y'all got the call. <laughs> Griff said, well, how'd the devil get you to buy the dress? She said, I was going out of the And the devil sneaked up behind me. I heard him tip until, you know, I didn't want to look around because I knew it was the devil, you know. <laughs> that devil came up behind me and said, he said, uh, say, mama, look at the dress in the window. 
said, that's your size, too. I said, it's on sale, too. Got a lot of them flowers in it like you like, you know. So why don't you treat yourself to that dress? And I told him, you better cut that out, devil. <laughs> I already bought two dresses this week. I'm not gonna buy no dress. I'm not even gonna look at it. The devil said, well, why don't you try it on? I said, I'm not gonna charge, charge you nothing to try it on. I mean, that's free. You owe yourself a try on. <laughs> I said, devil, you better leave me alone. <laughs> and he shoved me in the door. The devil just shoved me in that door. He pushed me in the door. I said, devil, stop it, please. <laughs> gonna buy that dress? I said, I'm not buying no dress, devil. And he pulled a gun. <laughs> devil pulled a gun and he threatened me and made me sign your name to a check. Griff <laughs> said, well, look, said, how come every time the devil makes you do something, it's something for your benefit? When's the devil gonna do me a favor? And his wife tells him, he did already. I asked the devil about that. He said, if it wasn't for him, you wouldn't even have a job. <laughs> This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now.
and now, and now too, and even now. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 15th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMeg. Flint Community Schools. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Weiscarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Sloan Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan, Flipflip Technology, Mark Community College, Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to Tom at TomSumnerProgram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Do you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative, whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, Visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom Dana. Dana? Something must be wrong. She never calls. Dana? What's wrong? Take this down. She's stranded on the side of the road. I'm not. She needs us to send her an Amazon gift card. I don't. And she'll use it to pay the tow truck driver. I won't. Mom, Dad, that's not me. It's a scam. Scam artists will call, text, or email people trying to get them to buy a gift card from Amazon or some other company, and then ask for the gift card number over the phone. Remember, gift cards are for gifting, not for paying people. If someone asks for payment using a gift card from Amazon, Target, or some other store, it's a scam. Hang up or delete the message. 
These scammers are awful. Wish they'd pretend to be her brother sometimes. Be nice to hear from him. For more tips on avoiding scams, visit michigan.gov AG for your connection to consumer protection. Oh, I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen. In the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. The outpatients are out in force tonight, I see. Good. (laughs) Now. I'm sure you're all aware that this week is National Gallbladder Week. (laughs) And so as... As sort of an educational feature at this point, I thought I would acquaint you with some of the results of my recent researches into the career of the late Dr. Samuel Gall, inventor of the gallbladder, <laughs> which, uh, which certainly ranks as one of the more important technological advances since the invention of the joy buzzer and the dribble glass. <laughs> Dr. Gall's faith in his invention was so dramatically vindicated last year, as you no doubt recall, when, for the first time in history, in a nationwide poll, the gallbladder was voted among the top ten organs. <laughs> his, uh, his educational career began, interestingly enough, in agricultural school, where he majored in animal husbandry until they caught him at it one day. <laughs> Whereupon whereupon he switched to the field of medicine, in which field he also won renown as the inventor of gargling, which uh, prior to that time had been practiced only furtively by a remote tribe in the Andes who passed the secret down from father to son as part of their oral tradition. He soon became a specialist specializing in diseases of the rich. (laughs) Was therefore able to retire at an early age. (laughs) To the land we all dream about, sunny Mexico, of course. The last part of which is completely irrelevant, as was the whole thing, I guess, except it's a rather sneaky way of getting into this next type of popular song, which is one of those things about that magic and romantic land south of the border. When it's fiesta time in Guadalajara Then I long to be back once again in old Mexico Where we live For today, never giving a thought to Tamara To the strumming of guitars in a hundred grubby bars I would whisper, te amo The mariachis would serenade And they 
would not shut up till they were paid. We ate, we drank, and we were merry, and we got typhoid and dysentery. But best of all, we went to the Plaza de Toros. Now whenever I start feeling morose, I revive by recalling that scene. Like Belmonte, Dominguina, and Manolete. If I live to 180, I shall never forget what they mean. For there is surely nothing more beautiful in this world than the sight of a lone man facing single handedly a half a ton of angry pot roast. Out came the matador who must have been potted or slightly insane, but who looked rather bored. Then the picadors, of course, each one on his horse. I shouted, holy, every time one was gored. I cheered at the banderilleros' display as they stuck the bull in their own clever way, for I hadn't had so much fun since the day. My brother's dog, Rover, got run over. Rover was killed by a Pontiac, and it was done with such grace and artistry that the witnesses awarded the driver both ears and the tail. But I digress. The moment had come, I swallowed my gum. We knew there'd be blood on the sand pretty soon. The crowd held its breath, hoping that death would brighten an otherwise dull afternoon. At last, the matador did what we wanted him to. He raised his sword and his aim was true. In that moment of truth, I suddenly knew that someone had stolen my wallet. <laughs> now it's fiesta time in Akron, Ohio. But it's back to old Guadalajara I'm longing to go. Far away from the strikes of the AF of L and CIO. How I wish I could get back to the land of the wetback and forget the Alamo. In old Mexico. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. I remember the night mom was pounding on her drums. She called me to her side. She said, son, you're growing up. Pretty soon you're gonna drive. And daddy heard the commotion and came, came in tap dancing, playing his six string. 
And they both looked at me and they said, son, before you get behind the wheel of a car, you listen to me. If you're texting while you steer, don't drive. If you've been drinking beer, don't drive. If you're talking on the phone, don't drive. If your tires are bald and it's starting to snow, don't drive. If your foot can't reach the pedal, don't drive. If you're wearing no apparel, don't drive. If you took an illegal prescription, don't drive. And no one understands your diction, don't drive. Don't speed, don't read, don't breathe, don't tweet, don't shave, don't rave, don't wave, don't eat, and don't put no makeup on or shave. You know you're not supposed to do that. Ugh. If you gotta do something you're not supposed to do, you can go ahead and step on my blue suede shoes. Ah, uh, go ahead and scuff them up. <laughs> if you're driving with your knees, don't drive. If while you roll, you eat, don't drive. If you don't know how to drive, don't drive. If you've been psychedelicized, don't drive. If you're kissing on your boo. Kissing on you. Don't drive. If you've been drinking at a bar. Don't drive. If there's guns in the car. Don't drive. Don't groom, don't shave, don't tweeze, don't nurse, don't pour your sneeze things in your ears or rummage through your purse. Ugh. Don't do that. Huh. If you won't do something you're not supposed to do, you can go ahead and tug on my food man chew. Go ahead, I don't care. Watch me tear. If you feel like a nap, don't drive. If there's a pooch on your lap, oh, it's dangerous and creepy. If you're feeling really wired, Never around, if your license is expired, don't you drive uh, around the town. Something you're not supposed to do You can go ahead and step on my bluesway shoes Scuff them up Then go ahead and pull on my Fu Manchu Yeah If you wanna do something You wanna do something that's good If you're feeling like any of that stuff Don't drive Make sure you got a clear head Ow Hey, that wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. There's Smokin' George Winters tickling the ivories. Let me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room. But uh, wrapping things up a little bit with Tom Lehrer and uh, a bit of a sombrero tip to uh, Cinco de Mayo for today. But thanks to all the guests that were on, uh, starting with this last hour, Douglas uh, Brower, and uh, before that, we had a chance to talk with um, Jeffrey Weiss, and we started out this morning with anti-racist Matthew Kincaid. See you tomorrow. Good night, everybody. Is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show, and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. 
If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.